Now, the challenges of renting into retirement with the increasing cost of living is the subject of a new documentary out today. It's called Last Home Renters, and it follows Rodney Pathia, a pensioner based in Coromandel, who is still renting. And for the documentary's director, there's a special connection to the project. She's Rodney's daughter. And Ness Pathia joins me now. Kia ora. Kia ora, Jessie. How are you? Good. Nice to talk to you, and congratulations on this very beautiful documentary. Some of the subject matter is, um, quite, I would say, quite domestic, but you have done a, a great job of creating a beautiful film. You must be very pleased with it. Yep, I am quite pleased with it. Um, I finished it a while ago, but we've been waiting for the release to be after the new government formed, so it's great to see it out in the open. Yeah, well, I see the people in uh, in the stores are wearing masks, which dates that a wee bit to the uh, couple of years ago, um, and you've filmed it in a beautiful place called Matarangi, at least it starts in Matarangi. Um, yeah, I grew, I grew up in Matarangi, so um, we've got a lot of connection there. Yeah, um, um, and presumably a little different there now than when you grew up, and that's really evidenced by the trouble that Rodney has finding a place to stay. Yeah, it's changed a lot. Like I remember it used to be gravel roads to get there when we first started going there, and um horse paddocks and that's all changed into housing so he's been there for a while and now he's well he wanted to stay but he's just struggling to find long-term rental and I think it's the scenario in a lot of those holiday towns um there's just a lot of empty houses and no long-term rentals yeah tell me why you wanted to make this documentary I guess it's a creative response to a problem so um that's what us artists do we make art about the things that are close to us and that have meaning for us and I was just trying to figure out how to solve his problem um, and then yeah decided I'm a, I'm a filmmaker documentary maker so I just started filming him and um, yeah I think it's it's been really topical the trailer blew up on the spin-off last week and there's a lot of commentary so I think it is close to a lot of people's hearts. I mean you're biased I hope you're biased because you're his daughter but he is a real character a really charming character and you can't help but love him because sometimes he's talking about being in quite a tough spot but he's laughing and he's quite endearing yeah I mean that's how he deals with the world he's jovial and upbeat and I thought that it's a bit more palatable to watch a documentary that's about a sad subject but that has an upbeat character so I think it's a nice balance you know you feel sorry for him, but you know he's got a good outlook on the world. Yeah, what is his situation? Because we hear about it in the first couple of minutes of the doco. Uh, he went bankrupt, actually, and um, lost his house, which he owned in that town. So uh, that was a long process, the bankruptcy, and then he moved into renting after that. Um, and he was in a really great long-term rental for a while until it sold on him, and then since then he's just been looking for temporary spots and... We've got a great landlord at the moment who's allowing him to stay on, but it's not long term, so yeah, I'm just looking for something a bit longer term. And the bankruptcy sounds like he had some really bad luck there, um, just just end up getting caught up with the wrong person. Yeah, it's pretty. I think people will relate to the story, but um, I guess it's a bad relationship, and then turned into financial ruin for him. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess people get in this scenario in many different ways because he was a homeowner, but now he's not. Yeah, um, Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the comments on the trailer were about how did he get into this situation? 
it's like, well, you have to watch the full documentary to get the full story because yeah. it's just a trailer. <laughs> yeah, I guess people want to hold someone responsible or, you know, maybe feel better if they can think in some way that it's the person's own fault, sadly. Um, yeah. y- what was it like making a film about your dad? Because you can't help but have a personal relationship with the person on the other side of the camera. Yeah, in some ways it was easy because uh, you've got the access and you know the subject. So there's not that, usually with documentary, you have to build some trust and have a good relationship before you go into it. Um, So that was already built in. But in other ways, it wasn't easy because technically you're broadcasting your family's problem. Um, But I, me and my dad discussed that and he's really happy to be a spokesperson for this problem because he knows that a lot of pensioners that are facing the same scenario and he just wanted to give them a voice. So kudos for him for putting himself on the line. Um, but yeah, he was quite happy with the whole scenario. He enjoyed being filmed. Oh, good. Fun. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Um, is that part of the motivation for you that although this is a, a very individual story that he represents the plight of so many sort of 65 plus retired people who are in a tricky situation if they don't own their own home? Yeah, I I sort of thought of this is a personal story, so it helps you connect if it's more personal and intimate, but it's a microcosm of a bigger problem. And I think that was kind of where I was coming from. Like it's just one example, but there's many examples out there of people who are struggling and pensioners that rent especially. Um, and it's the housing crisis, but it's got these many faces to the housing crisis, and this is just one of them. Yeah, and it's extra heightened, some of those problems, if you happen to be in an, basically in a resort town, right? People in uh, Queenstown will know all about this and um, and other places where people swarm in for the summer and, and it sort of makes more financial sense to have your place as an Airbnb or a, or a family batch rather than as long-term rental accommodation for people who live there. Yeah, and I've heard of this. Uh, there's many stories coming out. I've heard of it happening in Takaka in Golden Bay, um, in Gisborne, there's people in the far north that have had to move back to Auckland because they've lost their housing. Um, so a lot of those smaller holiday places, that it's just a, it's really difficult. And even in, I heard a story in Stewart Island, there's people having to leave their homes for many, they've been there their whole lives yeah. they've had to leave. So, Tough, yeah, eh? Common. How can people watch it? Where do they find it? So it's just dropped on the spin-off um, website and on their YouTube channel, and I'm pretty sure it's going to go on their Facebook very soon. Uh, so, yeah, get in amongst it, make some comments. There's a lot of conversations going, which is kind of ideal. That's what I'm looking for. Great. And, um, yeah. And what's next for you as a filmmaker? Um, we're just finishing a bunch of projects. Uh, just finished some TV series for Sakata Māori and... Yeah, just looking to develop some new projects now. Oh, nice to have you on the show today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for the chat. Ness Patia, whose 15-minute documentary about her dad, who is retired but still renting in Coromandel, trying to rent. It's called Last Home Renters. Time for the headlines now. Thank you, Jesse. Te Party Māori MPs have taken their protest action into Parliament this morning, going off script during the swearing-in ceremony. The National MP Jerry Brownlee has been confirmed as Parliament's new Speaker. 
The St John manager coordinating the ambulance response to the 2019 Christchurch terror attack says he and his colleagues were unprepared for the scale of the massacre and people in Northland and areas north of Auckland are being encouraged to keep an eye on the weather as storms roll in. We'll have more news at 2. Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today on The Detail, pseudo-ephedrine. It's about to reappear in pharmacies after a 12-year ban. I haven't seen more than just brief statements of the announcement to make a strong case that they have weighed up the risks versus the benefits. I hope they have done that in a considered way because it's an important piece of policy and you would not want to get it wrong. The Detail on Apple, Spotify, RNZ or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening this afternoon. Jesse Mulligan and team with you through 3.45. The saying, from small seeds grow mighty trees, is a good starting point for our next interview. What began as a way to replant native trees on a budget has grown into an impressive array of biodiversity projects at AUT's campus on Auckland's North Shore. Uh, it includes things like eco-sourcing seeds, establishing orchards, vegetable gardens and composting systems and a plan for an integrated circular food system to support the cafe opening at the university next year. At the helm is a man described as an all-round nature superhero, AUT groundsman Niven Winder. Niven, hello. Hello, Jesse. Nice to have you on the show today. Thanks for your time. How did this all begin from your perspective? Um, I started at AUT in 1989, and I Gosh. think at the time we had a fairly uh, limited budget, so really I was scratching around for ways to um, to be able to plant trees, plant the gardens. So we were looking at cheap ways of raising seed, and really it started from that. But then as I looked into it, I realised that um, we had a good source of seed close by at the nearby Smith's Bush, which is the probably the last remnant native bush in this area, um, and that's a short walk up the road. And so a couple of visits up there, we realised that we, we could get a few seed from that was dropping on the ground up there, and that would help us uh, grow things on the campus that were native to the area and would probably suitable. Um, and it sort of started from there and, and kind of snowballed. What a great um, idea. I mean, it's, it's obvious really now that you say it, but um, yeah, why wouldn't you get seeds from plants that are growing in almost precisely the same area and presumably have been growing there forever? Yes, yes, that's right. And and the benefit of that really is that the sort of species that we planted on the campus are, are well suited to the campus. And And one of the benefits of that is that we've now increased the biodiversity in terms of bird life on the campus because it's a short flight uh, along from Smith's Bush. And, for example, we never used to get wood pigeons on this campus. And probably about 10 years after I'd started, we started seeing the occasional wood pigeon. Huh. Well, now they're, here, now they're here every day um, because the trees are the same as what's just up the road. Yeah. Um, Plus other things we've added, so that's really helped with with increasing that biodiversity on campus. If you started in the late 80s, have some of those early trees grown to a decent size now? Yes, so we're now in a position that we don't really need to visit Smith's Bush. I mean, it's a nice trip to take the students up there and and see what what mature bush looks like, Uh, but we've now got enough mature trees on campus to pretty much support most of our... um, propagation on on campus yeah that's great elsewhere and from i'm just looking on google maps it looks like you've got a sort of a belt of trees running almost north to south on your campus 
Yes. So what we've tried to do is plant the perimeter of the campus. 